Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everyone, on this April the 15th, Tax Day. Oh, my goodness. And I want to just thank you so much for joining me today. And my guest is the author, Jack Hirsch who just flew in from New York this afternoon, just a couple of hours ago. And I'd like to welcome you to the show and welcome you to Los Angeles, Jack. And thanks, Marcia. Thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. Our show today is about your first nonfiction novel, Death, March, Escape. It's a story about your dad, Dave Hirsch, and how he remarkably escaped the Nazi Holocaust, not once, but twice, and lived to tell his story. It's a very remarkable story indeed. But before we talk about your book, I always like to share a little bit with my audience about my guest and about you, about you, Jack. So could you just tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I was born in Israel, and um, at the age of a few months, uh, came over with my parents to um, the East Coast of the U.S., specifically to Long Beach, New York. Um, I grew up there. Um, my father uh, did what did. There were many um, concentration camp survivors who lived there, and they all ended up in the senior citizen home, what we would call assisted living community now. So my father started as a busboy and a waiter and worked his way up to a manager and saved some money and eventually owned the place. Um, and that paid for my college education. And so I, I went to Columbia. I was an engineer there, and then uh, soon after, I switched into the world of finance, which uh, is where I've been for the last 30 years. Um, I write a little bit. Um, I've written a piece that was in the New York Times. I've written some articles um, for other finance magazines. I've written research reports, part of what I did for a living. Um, And when I'm not writing, I've got, uh, as uh, I think you know, a a host of hobbies that I I like to participate in. Well, that's Great. And it's interesting because you, you're sort of left brain, right brain here because you've got this engineering background and this financial background, and yet writing is, I would consider, to be sort of the creative side of life. And that's, 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 that's really interesting. The name of the book, once again, for people that are, that are tuning in, is called Death March. And, and it's not just Death March, but below that it says, the remarkable story of a man well, who March twice escaped. I'm so sorry. I meant to say that. Death March escaped. Thank you. The remarkable story of a man who twice escaped the Nazi Holocaust. So I suppose, Jack, the first question that I would be curious in knowing is, why did you write this book to start with? Well, great question. Um, so I've known my father's story my entire life. He was very different than virtually any Holocaust survivor you tend to read about or hear about or see portrayed in, in movies and television and plays. He was a interesting, outgoing, funny, gregarious, life of the party kind of guy. And he told the story of his escapes 
frequently. He specifically liked to tell about it, tell the story on Passover. You know, the, the Passover commemorates the Jews escaping from Egypt 3,000 years ago. Uh, and the first and second night, or depending on how you were brought up, at least the first night, you have a, a traditional meal. And in that traditional meal, you talk about um, the Jews having escaped from Egypt. My, well, my father would always digress to talk about his escape from concentration camp. So I knew the story cold. But what I didn't know was that people would have cared about that story. And over time, I found myself telling it to friends and to people I got to know one way or another. But then a few years back, I was at a business dinner. And at this dinner, somehow World War II came up and somehow my father's story came up. I, I can't for the life of me remember why. But I told my dad's story. And after that dinner, the next day, I got a call from one of the people at the dinner. And the guy says to me that he's from Louisville, Kentucky. He had never met a survivor. He had never met anybody that he knew to be related to a survivor. He had never heard of a story like that in his life, and it changed his life, just, just having heard it. He said he would never view difficulties in his life the same way again. And I thought, if that was true of him, that has to be true of thousands of people, millions of people. I've got this story. I know I know how to write. I thought it was beholden on me to, to bring, so I did. Wow. How long did it take you to write it, Jack? I guess from from the first word till the time I got done with the last round of edits was it was a little over two and a half years, pushing three years. Did you write on a daily basis? I've talked to authors that say, "Oh, I try to write three pages a day." Or did, was it was this? How was that process for you? You know, I didn't think of it in terms of volume. I just thought of it in terms of time. Um, I I knew the story I had to put down on paper. Uh, I didn't have a time limit for it. Um, I had a day job. I have a day job. And so uh, I, it was nights and weekends and free time and airplane trips. And when I was on the subway, I would take a couple of pages to edit. It was just squeezing it in wherever I could. I see. And your father has, has passed. Is that correct? Did he, did he die in what? 2001, I believe you said. Yeah, it, I think yes, I read. It, it was in 01. Yes. Okay. So he doesn't even know that you wrote this book. I wonder what he would think. Oh, he has he has no idea. And the interesting thing about the fact that he has no idea is I also believe he had no idea that what he did was at all interesting or unique. I mean, he thought it was interesting for us. And, you know, he would tell the story. And on occasion, I would encounter him being asked the story about the story or where he wasn't during the war. But other than that, I think my father believed that he hadn't done anything special. Yes, he escaped twice, but okay, so so what? You know, other people had other survival stories. He didn't see himself as unique. And I discovered over time that, in fact, it was he and his experience was remarkably unique and, and worth writing about. Sure. I know that there's a picture of your, of your dad when he was a young man, and it's remarkable, frankly, how much you look like each other. I'm sure people must say that to you all the time. But I know yeah. that that photograph, is a really significant beginning of your journey. So let's let's hear about that that photograph and how this all came about. Sure, and, and you you said it exactly right. That the photograph really launched the story. Although many years before, I actually put pencil to paper. So as I said, I I knew my father's story, um, and I and I also as I said, I didn't know how significant or unique it was. Uh, in two thousand and seven, I got a phone call from. My cousin, my cousin is my age, lives in Israel. It's my father's sister's daughter. We're, we're very close. And she calls me up and she says she was Googling something for her mom, was poking around the Internet. And she came across 
a photo of my father. Now, my father had, been, had passed six years earlier. So, and, and I don't think my father even owned a computer when I, when I think about it. So she says to me, he's on the Internet. You Google him and he shows up. So I Google my dad. I actually Googled his name and Mutthausen, which was the concentration camp that my father had been in for a, almost a year. And his photo comes up. And there's a caption under it. And the caption says that the, the family called the Freedmans, who lived in Western Austria, which was six miles from where the concentration camp was, the Freedmans had found my father after he had escaped and hid him till the end of the war. Apparently, this photo was indicating that my father was something of a hero to the concentration camp historians who had created the website and to the town. I had no idea. My father certainly had no idea about this. And so I wrote them. And I said, you know, how do you have this photo? Because, oh, by the way, I don't have this photo. I have a number of pictures of my father from before the war and many pictures from after the war, but not this one. So I I wrote them and said, how do you have the photo and how do you know the story? And we started a dialogue. And what I learned was that, and then this is a little bit of putting pieces of of, of information together in sort of a, a detective method and coming up with what the answer was. The answer was, that after the war, my father spent 18 months in the hospital. I knew this. About a year into that time in the hospital, he wrote home to his hometown. He had eight brothers. He was one of eight, eight brothers and sisters. He had no idea that anybody was alive, and he wrote home asking if anyone's alive. Wrote basically to a general mailbox in the town of Dej, which was in, today it's in Romania, then it was in Hungary. It's essentially in Transylvania. Well, he got a letter back from one of his brother and a sister. Two brothers and one sister out of the eight had survived. And they started writing back and forth. They couldn't visit my dad while he was in the hospital because they were in the Russian zone post-war. My father was in the American zone. It was just too difficult. But as part of their dialogue back and forth by mail, my father asked for this photo. Now, the history of the photo is my father was a model in his hometown. He was a good-looking guy. Or as I would tell people sometimes, he was a good-looking guy. Just ask him. Um, and he asked for, he asked for a, a, a copy, at least one copy. And my guess is, you know, before we had, um, cell phones and places where we could store our photos, you know, if you met somebody you liked or you had friends that you wanted to keep in touch with, you might give them a picture. I think that's what he did. He probably asked for more than one. There's no one alive to verify this with, but again, as I said, this was sort of what I pieced together. Now, when he got out of the hospital at the 18 month mark and he went back to his hometown, Coincidentally, the train stopped at the town where he had been hidden by this family, the Frieden family, after his escape. And that's because the town happened to be on the border between the Russian zone and the American zone. The The train stopped there for about five or six hours, and while he was there, he asked the station master to go to the Friedman's home and say to them that he's alive and he's there and he'd like to see them. They didn't have a phone. And Mr. Friedman came and met my dad, and my father, in that that train platform meeting gave Mr. Friedman a copy of the photo. 20 years later, a, an Austrian historian was trying to research um, forms of resistance by the Austrians. A form of resistance was hiding escaped prisoners, and he came across the Friedmans. They told him their story about knowing about my father's escape. They only knew of one escape, the second one. They told him the story, and they gave him the photo. He tried to publish a book, failed to publish it, and when he died, his siblings, his, his children gave the manuscript to Mutthausen. Then the internet was invented. Mutthausen was looking for things to put on it. They put the story on, they put the photo on, and my cousin comes across it. And that started the journey. And that's a long story, but I hope you follow it. No, 
But how fascinating. You don't by any chance have any of those letters, do you? No, no, no. I, the only, what I do have is that when my father wrote the first time, in their response, they sent a photo. And I have that the photo of the three of them now, the two brothers and a sister that were living back in the hometown. I have that photo, and that photo is actually in the book too. It is. This book, for those of you that are listening, um, and you can get this on Amazon, um, not only is it beautifully written, but I believe there are like 40 pictures in this book, and I have it in front of me right now, of the landscape, and but also, as you mentioned, uh, the pictures. And uh, it, it, what, what a memoir, what an, what an incredible story, because you also have children. Is that, am I right about this? And this, yes, I have a boy and two girls. I have, well, I have a, I have a and, 29-year-old boy and I, an identical twin 28-year-old girls. Wonder, oh, gee, close together. This yeah. is about their grandpa. You know, uh, it, it, it's, 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 really, it's really quite remarkable, and particularly, like you said, with, with Passover um, coming up at uh, the end of this week, um, this is very poignant because your book was just released the uh, late part of 2018. Is that right? So you haven't had a uh, Passover actually, since it was, your book it was, came out. It was released in October in Europe because my publisher is European. It's, they're a British military publisher. It was released in October in Europe and, and released in mid-January in the United States. Oh, so just very recently. Okay. Well, it, it's it's I the, the just the cover, just the I don't know. There's just something, Jack. There's just something about looking into your dad's eyes that um, I can feel it. I, I can I can feel him when I look at this picture of him. What um, so what was the most surprising thing that you learned as you started to look farther into what happened to your dad during World War II? Was there something that was like, whoa, I didn't know that? Well, it, there, as a matter of fact, there was, and probably you know many more than just one thing, but but an overarching surprise for me was, and this is going to sound a little odd, but just how horrific my father's experience really was. So like I said, he told the story all the time, but my father told the story in a very engaging and entertaining way. There is nothing entertaining about having spent 11 months in a concentration camp. And what I learned was this wasn't just any concentration camp. You know, people know of camps like Auschwitz or Treblinka, which was, of course, a death camp, Birkenau, which was a death camp. But Auschwitz was a work camp. Mudhausen, where my father was, was also a work camp. But the difference is subtle, but it's important. Mudhausen was designed to work you to death. Camps like Auschwitz were designed to work you horrifically, not care about your health, not, and, and, and very likely have you die on them. Um, but Mudhausen was designed to work you to death. Um, it was for criminals and for incorrigible POWs, for intelligentsia, for people that they, the Nazi regime didn't want to lie. But they did want to use their bodies. They had, it was a rock mine at the beginning of the war, and later it had factories attached to it for building aircraft and for um, other construction materials. So the idea of being sent there was to be sent there as, as punishment with the expectation that you would not come back. And my father was sent there, not because he fit into any of those categories, but, but by the time he got to the spring of 1944, the Germans were running out of people to kill. 
And so when the Hungarian Jews were deported from their homes to, their, to, to Auschwitz, many of them were sent on to Munhausen. So the surprise to me was just how incredibly horrific my father's story really was. And again, as I said, it's a question maybe of subtlety. I knew it was bad. I just didn't know it was that bad. How old was he? Uh, he was 18 when he was sent to the camps and turned 19 while he was in the camp. So uh, it was about a year. But, you know, kind of coming back to, this, to the surprising thing, I think another thing that was surprising, yeah. you know, the, the book is not just about my father, but it's a lot about me and my sort of learning my own emotional, my own emotional journey as I learn more and more about my father. And one of the surprising things to me was how impacted I had been in my life by my father's story. I mean, if you had asked me 10 years ago whether or not my father's story affected me, I'd say, yeah, maybe a little bit, like all of our parents impact us to some degree. But as I worked on the book and as I learned more and more about what my father had gone through, I began to understand a lot more about who I was and why I was this person. And I write about that too. So there was a second surprise. That's, that's, it was a real, a journey, a, a true journey, it was wasn't it? Very much a journey. It, it was very yes, much a indeed. journey of discovery, both of my father's experience. Um, you know, it, it, even when he would tell it, he wouldn't take the story to the to the final degree of, of, of horror. You know, when he would describe being beaten, he would talk. He was nearly beaten to death more than once, and would talk about it. But he would smile when he talked about it. Now, you smile about something like that, and your audience is just not going to pick up how what a close call it was. And then if, when I'm standing. Um, in, when I'm standing in front of the building where he worked, it's, the, the building still exists, where he worked in that concentration camp, I'm standing in front of it and suddenly I'm realizing, you know, that, that episode where he was nearly beaten to death has got to have been just that much more horrific, that much more of a close call than, I'm, than I'd ever considered. True. Are any of his siblings alive? Well, so after the war, as it said, two brothers and a sister survived the the oldest right. brother and the sister have have since passed um he has one brother two years older than him that's still alive um he's 96 years old and actually i just saw him in israel last week oh my gosh did you does he know oh my gosh jack does he know that you uh wrote this book i imagine he does not only does he know that I wrote the book, I needed him for, to verify things like there's a photo um, or there, there are photos I have of, of the home where my father grew up. Um, and I just I wanted to make sure I had it right. So I showed him the home. And you know, that was that was a, a big deal for him to see it. I bet. Ninety six years old. He must be so very proud of you for capturing yeah, I, this legacy? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's hard mean, to say no. I mean, you know, his, think about the, the, it. He had an easier course through the war. Um, he was in a labor battalion. Uh, labor battalions were, were where they took mostly Jews, but also non-Jews in Hungary. And they had them um, working, building roads and bridges and, and buildings and repairing roads. Um, so he never ended up in concentration camp. And in fact, he escaped from his labor battalion in December of the year that they had all been transported out. So in other words, he'd, he'd only been in this battalion about six or seven months um, and came back to his hometown, which by that point had already been overrun by the Russians. So the war for him was over 
sooner than it was for his two other brothers and surviving sister. You used, you you just used a word right now called transport, and I noticed as I was reading your book that that is that is really um, a specific term that you use, isn't it? Transport. That, that's that's a, a great point, and, and I I use it and. Um, uh, Victor Frankl's book, uh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he uses it also. I, my father never used the word death march. And to kind of go back to one, one of the surprises that I had encountered or, or why it was such a surprise. So he never used the word death march. I'd heard of death marches, but I never assumed that my father had been on a death march. It, it, it's not how he described it. It's not how I would have thought about it. He used the word transport. Sounds like an English word, but it's actually also a German word, which basically was used by prisoners to talk about going from point A to point B. You could be in a transport on a train, you could be on a transport in a, in a truck, or you could be in a transport by being marched. Now, of course, in the case of these death marches, like my father's too, where he escaped, they were, they were transports, but they were death marches. But because my father used the word transport and never called them anything but that, it never occurred to me that they were anything but that. And then, of course, I see in the Mutthausen website, it's described very clearly as a death march. And I'm now I'm beginning to realize that, you know, maybe things weren't quite as simple and easy as my father made it out to be. Right. Interesting. I, I know when I read that, I thought that that's interesting because he oh, he was initially, I know when I read this part, he was initially transported um, by rail, right? That's how he got to... Yes the first concentration camp as he must have been so terrified. I just, I can't even imagine. Um, well, you know, uh, let me touch on that for a second, because please. it's also an interesting experience. I think of, of, of the Jews of Europe, when you say that he was most likely terrified, I think he was nervous. He had an opportunity to hide in his hometown and not go on the, as you pointed out, the transport, that first train trip from his hometown's ghetto to Auschwitz. All the Jews of his town, 7,600 Jews, were sent to Auschwitz first. What they were told was that they were going to be relocated. They were not told that Auschwitz, first of all, they weren't told they were going to Auschwitz. They didn't know. They were told they were going to be relocated and resettled in another part of another part of, of occupied Europe. And in fact, all the Jews or as far as I know, all the Jews and all the transports throughout Europe were told that. they were One of the, the most incredible aspects of what the, the, the final solution had nearly, that had nearly happened was that no one knew it was happening while it was happening until you actually faced it by coming off your train in Auschwitz-Birkenau and, and, and again, not realizing that, that perhaps if you went to the right, you were actually on a line that was going to lead to... Um, you being gassed within an hour. So, so I don't yeah. think he was yeah. terrified. I think he was nervous. They all kind of were uncertain mm-hmm. where they were, where they really were going to end up, but none of them suspected what the truth, not even close. Yeah. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, you know, it's not like, you know, they read about what was happening on the internet. They, they really didn't know what was going to happen. Um, what do you think makes your father's legacy so unique? What what makes that so unique, do you think? Well, I think most importantly, I mean, there have been a few escapes here and there, um, but I think there are two aspects to my father's life that is most unique. One, his two escapes. He escaped, was recaptured, incredibly not killed. I mean, that's, that's a, a story in and of itself. 
um, sent back to Mauthausen. Two weeks later, two weeks later, he's on another death march or another transport, as he would have called it, um, and he escapes again. So I think that was um, a very a very important part of his legacy. But a second thing I think was something I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which is that he was unlike any survivor you would have come come across in popular literature and movies and, and whatever you might read or hear about. Um, My father, as I said, I grew up in Long Beach and my father's closest friends were all survivors and he and his close friends were all cut from the same cloth. They were funny, interesting, engaging, lighthearted guys. Um, yet when you hear about concentration camp survivors, you tend to think of them as quiet and downbeat and morose, never having cracked a joke or a smile, perhaps since the day they were sent out off to Auschwitz or Treblinka. And I think my father's legacy, what I would like people to pick up from the book, if you didn't know him personally, was that in fact there was this other type of survivor, this guy who, who lived every or a free day because it was, um, and and lived every day just incredibly thankful to for being here and making sure not to waste a day because it, it's a, it, it it should his life should have ended in his mind when he was eighteen or nineteen years old, and and that I think is an important legacy that he passed on certainly to me and and to and I and to my kids directly and from me indirectly. You bet. So is. What do you, if you, when you think about, you know, you writing this book and you said it, you know, it took you two and a half years to write it. What, why was writing this book a priority for you? Why, you know, you, you're an established businessman. You've heard the story. You've, you've, you've seen the photograph, you know, what, what was the, what was writing the book? Why was that a priority for you? Well, I, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it really comes down to that realization that was it, it was initially triggered by that dinner that wait a minute this the story is impactful to people it, it's a guy is actually going to tell me it, it's changing his life I think knowing that kind of kind of kind of got me on my horse to to want to write it but then when I started working on it started researching it and discovering for instance how important he was to the town of Enns, Austria. It's spelled E-N-N-S in case, in case it's hard to understand. Um, Enns, Austria was six miles from the continent, three miles as the crow flies, but six miles by car on the other side of the Danube River. That's the town where the Freedmans lived, and that's the town where they hid my father. And that's the town that felt that my father's rescuers were heroes, rightly so, because they did something. They were given an opportunity to do the right thing, and they did it. For no gain for themselves. In fact, they risked their lives to do it. Um, and so the town events really took them as as something as an important marker for them as to their experience in the war. And I think as I discovered that, it became important for me to get this book out so that other people could learn how great some people were within the shadows of this concentration camp. I think a lot of people um, who read again back to the popular literature. They wonder what happened to the in the surrounding communities and why were they silent? And first of all, they were silent very often because they had to be because their lives were at risk if they weren't. But then you have people like the Freedmans, Barbara and Ignaz Friedman, who just did the right thing. Um, and there were others like there, there were others. There were three other escapes that we know of single single time escapes. 
from the death marches coming out of Mauthausen. And then, so there are three other families that tried to do the right thing within those, those environs as well. Um, we don't know who they are. They're not memorialized in any way, but you know, it's important to recognize that there were people like that in Austria and in Germany, wherever these concentrations drove me as well. I bet. Had the Freedmen's been discovered, they would have also been put to death. So the risk was... Oh, no was question. So enormous. No, no, no question. Uh, they, know, ri- they risked their... From the minute they met my father on the, the Tuesday morning, he escaped on a Monday at 6 o'clock at night, give or take. I mean, he wasn't wearing a watch. He's guessing when he tells <laughs> the story. Um, the next morning, when he encountered the Freedmen's, from the minute they didn't turn him in, their lives were at risk. They were violating uh, laws. Um, and to, to taking them into their home and keeping him there for three weeks, yes, they, were, they, they risked everything to do it. And they had children. It, they were risking not only their lives, but the lives of their children as well. I mean, it was an enormous risk. 100%, and, 100% right. They, they had an 11-year-old, 11-year-old boy, and as, as I write in the book, you know, 11 year, they, he didn't know about my father being hidden in their house at the time. Because as, as I write, you know, 11 years old is not the age to be told something that could lead to the death of your parents. Um, but in fact, he was never told. He learned about it from relatives. Um, now, his, his children, so... The Freedmen's grandchildren knew more about the story. The Freedmen's did tell them. Um, the son died many years ago. I never met him, but I've met the grandchildren um, in Austria, and which was, of course, you know, an emotional moment for me to begin with. That's amazing. So you just mentioned emotion, and I, I mean, I'm just sort of wrapped up in emotion as I'm speaking to you about this. And what I'm curious to know is how did you feel about writing about your father's path to survival? What did that feel like for you as you wrote it? Well, the feelings, you know, really, I went through a a range of emotions. You know, initially, I think um, it was just sort of something to help get the word out, and there wasn't much emotion there at all. I I was like, okay, I know this story really well. I'm just going to put it down on paper. But then I think what triggered emotion was not the actual act of writing, but the act of walking the grounds of the concentration camp. As I said earlier about about standing in front of the building where he slaved, where, you know, he, he worked 10 or 12 or 14 hours a day with a slice of bread for breakfast and a, and a bowl of watery soup for lunch. And that's it. Maybe a slice of bread for dinner. That's all he had for those seven or eight or nine months that he was actually working in that location. So, the, and, and the, when we you ask about what kind of emotion I experienced, the, the most unexpected emotion, but the first one was anger. Um, it, I, I was just furious. It was like, all I wanted to do was find someone that I could pummel. I just, you know, how could you put my father through this? How, or forget my father. How could you put the hundreds of thousands of people that, that had filtered through Mutthausen and its sub camps, how could you put them through this? Um, you know, how could you put their lives at risk and kill more than half of them that showed up there? So anger was one, of course, you know, general sadness for what had happened. And there was also elation. You know, I was, to know that my father pulled it off is not a little thing. And I felt good about that too. So that was when I talked about the range of emotions, anything from anger to sadness to elation, I experienced that. But I think to to kind of take it to the next step. So I also walked into the intersection where my father escaped the first time. He, He had gotten caught up with refugees 
his, his line of march was going straight. The refugees were cutting across him from his left to his right. And he just turned with them. And nobody saw him do it. And when I stood in the intersection where he did that, now some 70-odd years later, and I considered what the thought process must have been in his head for that millisecond where he had the choice, go straight or turn to the right. Um, you know, anything from shock to surprise to to wonderment, um, every every possible emotion was, but, but, but surprise may be the most overwhelming one. How did he make that call? How did he right. make that decision on the spur of the moment? And he, He's a five foot eleven, hundred sixty pound guy who weighed eighty pounds. He was a walking skeleton. Why did he think? And he was wearing a concentration camp uniform. Why did he think no one would notice? And by the way, he made the turn, and two steps later, he found the raincoat on the ground and put it on, and suddenly no one did notice. And he pulled it off for a while. What um, guts? What guts yes. that had to take? You know. Frankly, you know, you just described a man that's weighing half of what he weighs, um, and he's 80 pounds. He is, like you mentioned, a walking skeleton, so he doesn't have a lot of strength. Uh, he may be strong, but, I mean, he doesn't have that weight behind him to help carry his strength. No, and no, he, he, was, he, was at, he was absolutely at, his, at, his, at the end of his rope. In fact, on that march, that first, this is the first escape, and on that first march, um, he had actually gone to the side of the road, and if you went to the side of the road, they shot and killed you. And inexplicably, an SS trooper walked straight towards him, saw my father sitting on the side of the road, rubbing his feet, waiting to die, and walked past him. And my father said that the, that the shock of not being shot just created the surge of energy in him, and, and he used that to get to that intersection, which was a mile or two away. We don't know exactly where he went to the side of the road that time, but we do know the exact intersection, and we do know the exact place he went to the side of the road the sec- at the second escape. What time of year was that? I mean, I'm thinking about so what both, the conditions were. So the, the first escape was uh, on a nice April day, April, very, very early April. We don't know the exact date, April 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th of 1945. Now, it was cool. Uh, April in, in, in this part of Austria is generally not a warm month at all. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, since March is in like a lion and out like a lamb, still in like a lion. Um, so it was not comfortable, but it was a, a decently nice day. The next escape was two weeks later. And that day, my father describes as rainy and drizzly and cool, almost cold. So his his two escapes were very close together. Yes, yes. So so what what to put some his, historical context around it. Um, mm-hmm. In early 1945, or going into into March and April of 1945, the Americans and British were approaching Austria from the west, heading east. The Russians were coming from the east, heading west. By the time they got to Vienna, it was now the beginning of April, and Vienna was only 90, 95 miles away. What the Germans had done is, is taken Jews in concentration camps in the surrounding areas, and also Jews that were in work battalions, like where my uncle had been, up to about 100 miles away, and forced marched or death marched all these Jews to Mudhausen, until Mudhausen had somewhere in the order of 22,000, 23,000 Jews to the main Mudhausen camp, which was called the tent camp. And my father actually was put in this camp too, the, the, the tent camp. Um, 
They were do- they had done that for no really understandable reason. The ex- the belief is that really what the Nazis wanted was for no Jews to remain alive. You can't easily kill that number of, of people. You can't just line them up and shoot them. It, it, I mean, the, the math just doesn't work, and the Nazis knew that. But you can force march them and hope that they'll die. So I don't know how many died on the marches to Munhausen, but from Munhausen to their next destination, which was 34 miles away to the south and west, it was called Gunzkirchen. That's where my father was headed both times. On that march, about half of the Jews died on the marches. So more than 10,000, or around 10,000, died on those marches. Oh, isn't that how so did that he was, escape the second time? That was the kind of the context time. around. So when you ask about the, the the two marches being close together, my father' mm-hmm. first escape was on a very early march. There were there were actually I should add they were marching between five hundred and a thousand Jews at a, at a time. You couldn't uh, any group larger than that would have been too hard to guard. So let's mm-hmm. say there were twenty two thousand. Jews in this camp, the expectation was it would take somewhere between 25 and 30 days to get them all out, and they started in the beginning of April. Um, it's, I am just, it's, it's a lot to um, take in. What do you hope that people will understand about the people like the Freedmans who, who risk their own lives to help save your fathers? What, what do you think where does that where does that come from? That that desire. Well, I I would like to have people think that there's good everywhere. Um, you know, even in places where you would like to believe that. Okay, so here you're six miles from a concentration camp. Nobody's lifting a finger. Well, on one hand, I think a lot of the the, the popular thought is well, they should be lifting fingers, and they and they're not, and so therefore there's something not not well or right about the populace and that just, you know, the populace may in fact be half Nazi and may in fact be heavily anti-Semitic, but not everybody. And even within that body, um, there are people within that, that, that can, those series of communities in the surrounding towns. There are people who didn't like what was happening, who wish they could do something. And then, so the freedmen given a choice, given a, a sudden opportunity to do the right thing, they do it. Um, and I think a lesson to be learned is that that probably is true everywhere you go. Um, not everyone, you know, moves to the drum that, that they hear that not everyone is moves in lockstep. Even when you hear about what happened in throughout Nazi Germany and then the rest of Europe, um, and you hear about sympathizers, the sympathizers, even within Germany, were not a hundred percent of the population. There were good people there. There were people who helped down pilots and, there were people who helped troopers um, when American and Russian troops were coming through. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that that, was, that existed. And this book, I, I like to believe, helps make that happen. Oh, I think that's, that's, that's really wonderful. You mentioned a little bit ago that you returned to Austria late last year, um, which I think is fabulous. And I'd like to know, what, what did you hope to experience or accomplish in that, in that visit? Because that was that your first well, time going back there since you'd written the book, I'm assuming. No, so, oh, no, it was before um, you I actually, the, the, you know, the, the truth is, I actually had gone back once at, in the middle of writing just to, to to double check facts and figures and make sure that what I what I remembered I remembered correctly. And then I went back again, as you point out, last year, the book had just come out in Europe. That was it came out in October, and I went went back in November, and I was actually invited back. There is. 
a committee of people around the Mutthausen, within the, the surrounding towns near Mutthausen, um, who, whose mission it is for them to keep the memory of Mutthausen and what happened there alive. And what they did is they set me up with six different, well, five different groups of students in one, one community meeting, actually in ENDS. I had about 150 people in a room with me. ENDS is only a town of about 10,000 people. So 1% of the town, more than 1% of the town was in the room with me when I, and I was introduced by the mayor and I told them my father's story. I believe was meeting these school kids. Um, five different groups, 200 to 250 kids at a time. Most of them in the, in the you know junior, senior, high school range where I told my dad's story and what was, what was tangible for them was, you know, I could point and say, this happened four miles from here directly in front of where my finger was pointing. They would drive by this camp on their way to school every day. Actually not the camp Mudhausen, but the sister camp Guzan two miles away where my father spent most of his time. Um, but they would drive by it every day and may not have been aware of exactly what went on. They may know it was a concentration camp, but did they really know the story of what had taken place behind the walls? And they brought me back there to lay out that story in, in detail, to have them be able to look at photos of my father before the war and after the war, where he looked before the war, he was a teenager just like them. So to, to, Give it a, a tangible sense of reality to have these kids look at this photo and go, oh, he's my age. And a year later, he weighs half of what I weigh. Um, in fact, what I did when I was talking to the kids was um, I would have everybody between the height of five foot nine and five foot eleven stand up. And then I would say to them, okay, now picture yourself at half your body weight. And now walking around that way, do you think you could have made a decision to to escape? Or do you think you could have made every morning at 5 a.m. and worked 12 hours and then gone back to sleep and done it again the next day? So I think the point in bringing me back was to help a help ground these kids in the reality of, of what had happened there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that I'm sure that hearing it firsthand from you, as you speak about your dad really was able that I mean, these kids have probably heard stories like this in the past, but to have you in front of them um, telling your story, I'm sure really resonated with them. And I, I think it's really a beautiful thing that, that you were able to, to share that information with them. In, we live in such trying times, and I, I try to keep my show as as inclusive as possible and try to stay away from the politics of today, but in this particular case, because of the story that we're talking about, I I just want to know, how does the divisiveness of the Holocaust resonate today, in today's world, especially, and you know, before you answer that, that specific question, because I do want you to answer that, I think it would be really helpful if you wouldn't mind spelling Mudhausen, because I looked at that word, and there's no way I would have known how to spell that. So would you like to spell it in yeah. case somebody does want to Google it? Sure. It's M-A-U-T-H-A-U-S-E-N, Mutthausen. Thank you. Um, okay, terrific. Yeah. 
I think that, you know, as we all do, that's sort of how this whole thing started with you as well. And so I think it's important for people that may be listening and really want to delve in deeper. This would be a way that they can can do that. But back back to my question to backtrack just a bit. Um, in today's world, how does the divisiveness of this Holocaust um, present itself today? Well, I, oh, that's a that's a great question, and and I could try to answer it succinctly, or we could we could spend hours addressing it. But I think what's important is that well, there are there are a number of elements. One is you know, I think if you had looked at at the German nation in the 1920s, you would not have believed that they could have gotten where they had gotten to in the 1940s. And I and I am not saying that that anywhere on this planet we can do that again. But I am saying that we have taken a few steps in that direction. And but I think because we all went through what we all went through or the world went through what it went through in the 1940s, we're not going to get there again. But this, this kinds of things, this divisiveness, this this fear of somebody different than you, for whatever that reason might be, whether it's from where they were born or the color of their skin or the, the accent that they speak with, um, it's just wrong and leads to really bad places. So I think that that's one aspect of it. But then I've got to come back to the Freedmans because they, as, as you and I talked about just a few minutes ago, they are proof that even in an environment where a lot of people may, you know, as we would say, drink the Kool-Aid, a lot of people do believe that, that divisiveness has a reason behind it and that, you know, that's what they've bought into. Then you get people like the Freedmans who say, no, I'm not buying into this and I'm going to do what I have to do to make sure that, that, that lives are saved and that, and that, um, people realize that there's good in this community as well. I wonder, um, thinking about the Freedmans, because obviously they are heroes here, um, in, their, in their lineage, in their family, is, has someone been motiva- motivated to write a book after getting to know more about you? Do you think that there'll be a Freedman book about their experiences? No, I, I, I don't, because they don't know enough about it. You know, as I said, Mr. and Mrs. Friedman, Ignaz and Barbara Friedman, told almost no one. They told a few relatives. They didn't tell their son. Um, they told their grandchildren a little bit about it. They pointed out, for instance, to um, their grandson, who I met a few years ago, um, exactly where they met my dad on this shortcut that my father had escaped down. It was actually a shortcut from um, a main road to the town train station. Um, so they, So he knew a little bit about it, but not enough to be able to ever put pencil to paper and, and have anything more than a short story to tell. Um, they, they also, I think, you know, my, my, they didn't know about my father's first escape, certainly, but I, like my, they, my, they rescued my father the second time. I don't think my father said, wow, you know, good thing because last time it didn't work so well. Um, <laughs> I think, I just don't think that there is enough there. And also, so the son is now a monk in Northern Austria, sweet, Great guy, um, you know. Look, his his grandmother saved his grandmother and grandfather saved my father's life. I, I he's a brother to me, and and I just recently met his sister, who I hadn't met earlier. But when I went back in November, I met her as well. And you know, my feelings for them are like like they are for for my brother. I mean, uh, if not for their grandmother, I'm not here. My brother's not here. That's remarkable. So speaking of children, we mentioned that you have the twins. A boy? Are the twins boys, girls, or daughters? They are identical girls. Right, and then you have a son that's a little bit older. 
Right. Okay. Wow, that's pretty cool. So what was the feedback that they wanted, that they offered to you about your book? I'm sure they must have had some thoughts. Well, not only did they have thoughts, they actually helped me a little bit with editing. My, 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 both my daughters and my son are, are, are really great writers. I think there's some innate writing talent that I'm told from my uncle who's still alive that it actually came from his father, my grandfather, who was a businessman but apparently was a great writer. Um, I don't think I'm great, but I think I'm, I was certainly good enough to get this out um, in a form that people like. Um, but my kids helped me with the editing. Um, they've said to me that they really hope that their friends read it and the people of their generation read it. You know, they're in their late twenties. Um, they, their generation is at a solid one and maybe two generations removed now from the war. They remember my father, you know, my father told them the story of his escapes, but they were seven and eight years old. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and then he passed on right after and, you know, literally six months after he told them the story for maybe a third or a fourth time. But so their memory is, is fading of that. So now they've got this book where they can really remind themselves and learn once again, what their grandfather had gone through. But by the same token, look, I'm, I'm 60. Uh, I, work with people in business in their forties. And when I tell people that my father escaped from concentration camp, they say to me, you you mean your grandfather? So there's this generational gap now that I think needs to be filled with information. Um, And I'm, I think I would like to believe that my book does that. I would agree. And for those of you listening, um, I want them, I want you to know that there is a website. You can go to deathmarchescape.com. And you can read about this. The book is definitely on Amazon so that you can pick it up. I think it's this time of the year, um, it's particularly uh, important. Well, do you Have you taken some of your father's um, experiences at Passover? And do you now share some of those stories with, with your family at Passover as, as taking the legacy forward? That, that uh, I'm smiling as you ask that because what I've done purposely <laughs> since long before my father okay, passed ahead. on, you know, so okay. when I was ha- raising my family and when we would have our Passovers or when we would go to friends for Passover, Passover dinner, the Seder, or when I was a, as a single person invited alone, I would always interject with his story. I would, I would just ask permission of the host if I could tell the story. It was a tradition for me. It was, as I, as I pointed out earlier in our, in our talk, that it, it's a surprising story to, to many people. Um, they, they, most people have never heard of a story like this. And then when they have, they haven't met a person quite as, as you know, interesting, funny, and outgoing as my dad. And when I, when I throw all those descriptions out there, it's all a surprise to people. So I've always made an effort to tell this story on Passover besides at other times. So yes, it, it's, it has huge meaning to me personally. You know, I remember um, I, I live in Westchester on the, the other Westchester, not the New York Westchester. <laughs> and uh, I remember as a very small child wondering why Joey Mandel's mom had these numbers on her arm. I mean, what I, what was that? I didn't yeah. I didn't know anybody that had experienced that. It's not like you can take some um, material, some solution, and rub those numbers away. And it, you know, there's the Simon Wiesenthal Center here is, is 
really does capture a lot of stories, oral stories. I'm sure you're familiar with that because your your son yeah. goes to college here, so I'm sure you're very familiar with that. But and you know, and sometimes through movies, we're also educated. I it's pretty hard not to. If you saw Schindler's List, it's pretty hard not to remember the little girl in the red coat. You know, there's just, you know, there's just certain visuals that that we have. And with Passover at the end of the week, I'm thinking that there will be people now that, based on our conversation, may be able to add a little bit more to their story. And perhaps maybe they will end up sharing a story that they've suppressed you know, I you, when you talked about those emotions that you went through, it's it's interesting, Jack, because I um, have a lot of things in my office, a lot of posted up notes about different things, and one of them are the uh, five stages of grief, and uh, you basically hit all of them except denial because there was no denying that this happened. But you, one of the first things you mentioned was sort of being angry about this, and um, it, it it is quite a compelling story, and there are not a lot of people that are able to even tell the story today. And it, it's important that that it be that it be told. It's, if if you had to say, all right, so I've written this book. I, I, it served my purpose. I, I've been able to to write this. That serves my personal purpose. But what do you hope your readers will gain from reading your book? Well, I think in the biggest, broadest picture, what I would like my readers to do is turn to their parents. And well, by the way, before I even complete that answer, I should interrupt myself. Say there's there's a number of things. I mean, there, there, I, you could take the obvious one of never forgetting. We, we, we just can't forget what happened to the Jews. What happened to? It isn't just the the, the six million Jews, but there's five million others who were killed by by the Nazis during the war. Whether it was gays or, or uh, the disabled, um, gypsies. So. Never forgetting that. But beyond that is where I was going before I just interrupted myself. Um, <laughs> what I would like people to, to realize is that we all come from somewhere. And that somewhere that we come from has impacted who we are. Um, you know, my father was a survivor. And I, I've got all these, these things that I do. I'm, I'm, I'm a martial arts black belt. And I fly aerobatics planes. And I play hockey. And I ski. Um, and I, I mean, I can, there's a list. And I think I discovered that I do all these. I know people who do one or two of them. I don't know very many people who do all of them. And I think it's, it's because I was always trying to somehow equal the impossible feat that my father equaled. And so to take it to its, its bigger picture, whether your father or mother was a a senior corporate executive or an actor or um, an athlete or um, a bus driver or a homemaker or an accountant, no matter, or, or, or a cop or fireman, first responder, no matter what our parents do for a living or, 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 or not do for a living, that's impacted us. And our parents have stories. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to learn our parents' stories a, so we can understand ourselves better, and B, so we can pass them on to our kids so they can understand where they come from even better than they might otherwise know. Um, and so I'd like people to get that. To, I, I'd like people 
to be suddenly curious about their own parents' stories and wonder whether or not those stories were were downplayed and, and not told in, in, in full um, with all the emotion that should have been attached to it um, because the parents were concerned about what the kids would think. So I'd like people yeah. to get that from the book. I think, that's, I think that's brilliant, and I think that you're right about that. I think particularly today with the technology that we all have and someone's listening and they're going, gosh, you know, what was the story about my grandpa? And I, right now, my parents have both passed. They passed many, many years ago. I would love nothing better than to speak to my parents about this and what, what their experiences were. My father was 18 years. Actually, he was 17 years old. He lied about his age to go to the war. And from a very large family of Pem siblings um, from Poland to Canada, Canada to, to Duluth, Minnesota. And I would just love for him to be hearing these stories and then getting his perspective on them. Because like you said, there's these legacies continue. And today, you know, there's so many ways we can journal or write, whether it's oral or it's written to just because once we're gone, we just can't get those stories back. You know, I can't ask them, well, well what about this? They're, it's gone. And for you to be able to so succinctly not only write what your father experienced, but what you experienced as his son, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a brilliant gift. It's a brilliant gift to you. It's a brilliant gift to your family as well. And uh, the Freedmans are, I mean, who doesn't want to meet the Freedmans? Who doesn't want to meet your father? You bring them to life in your, in your stories, in your books. And frankly, to, to wrap this around to why I do what I do is that not everybody has a story like yours, Jack. I mean, when I say what's your story, it isn't always going to be as profound or as inspiring as what you've been today as my guest. But it's not a contest, as my son would say. Mom, it's not a contest. It's not one story suddenly is more important or different or better than someone else's. But your story is so beautifully told, not only in the written form, but the, just the way you express yourself and the fact that you do go to schools and that you do educate. And people do want to know what your what what it was like to be the son of Dave Hirsch, it's 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 pretty astounding. I I'm I I feel like this has been just a privilege, but I really am happy that you threw something else in there, Jack, because it's part sometimes of what I personally struggle with, and that's a bit of balance. And I we happen to be Facebook friends, and something pretty exciting happened in your private life in the last. Well, a couple of pretty exciting things have happened, and I know if you care to share that with people, I you go right ahead. Otherwise, I'll just tell them about your sure. hockey trophy. Go ahead. It's your turn. Well, I, Tag, I've, you're I'm, I'm engaged to be married um, for a second time um, to the most remarkable woman in the world. Um, and, yes, um, coincidentally, uh, at, at, at not the exact same time, but within a few weeks of each other, um, my hockey team won its division championship. and. And considering the fact that I'm twice as old as, as the next oldest guy on my team, that felt pretty good. So. 
coach. They're calling you coach. It's like, hey, I'm not a coach. I'm your wingman. What no, they worked. They called me. They were calling me dad. They were calling me dad, which oh, I, I really well. kind of wasn't appreciating. But but they appreciate my efforts on the ice and off, and it's been it's been a blast playing with these guys. Oh, I just think it's great. I you know I I I so appreciate the fact that you're you're in my backyard right now, and and I know your son lives here. We both share the experience of our kids going to UCLA. And I hope that one of these times when you are in town and we can work it out, since I'm, I sounded like I was going to go into a Beatles song just then, um, we could, you know, maybe get together and 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 share a hello in person because I think that would be marvelous. But I've so appreciated your generosity and just joining me today. I want to thank Tracy for um, re, um, introducing me to you because it was through Tracy Minsk that I learned about you. So I am very grateful for, for Tracy for that. And it's a beautiful day here. I know all of us will be watching the news tonight as we watch the devastation in Paris. But be, and, that's, and I don't want to say that's not important because it is important. But I think also what's important is that we are grateful we are grateful for our lives and what we can do in our lives. And as, as we reach this very holy week for my friends that will be celebrating Easter and Good Friday, I wish the best for all of you. To all of my Jewish friends and community, happy Passover to you. And, and Jack, just enjoy your time while you're here in Los Angeles. And then safe travels back. You know, we have a Long Beach too, but it's, it's a different one than yours as well in New York. But I, I do so appreciate you taking the time to be with me today, Jack. It was just fabulous, really. Thanks for having me, Marsha. Really my pleasure. So, everybody, I'm going to say goodbye for now. I have a whole new show next week with Tamara Hunter. She is the organizer of Chemo Buddies for Life, and we're going to be talking about her incredible um, nonprofit organization to make a difference for people. But until now, I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to let Jack get on and spend some time with his son. Have a wonderful week, everybody, and I'll see you again next week. Bye for now.